When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm your co-host, Aaron Lammer. Uh, this week, we're running interviews with winners of this year's George Polk Awards. Uh, this episode features an interview with Osmot Khan, who has been on the show before. Uh, she uh, won uh, alongside uh, two other New York Times reporters, Dave Phillips and Eric Schmidt, the Military Reporting Award for their investigation into civilian deaths as a result of drone strikes. Uh, here she is, Asma Khan. Welcome back to the program, Asma Khan. Thanks for having me back. At the time we last talked, you had already started writing about civilian deaths from American military airstrikes. So this is uh, this has been uh, a part of your life for a while, uh, leading up to the series of articles that you and your team uh, won a Polk Award for. So this specific series, sort of take me back to when did you first hear about the airstrikes in question and as someone who's been in the airstrike world for a while like are you do you have google alerts for airstrikes set up how how do you how do you monitor what's going on in, in this realm that's a great question i was in pakistan reporting back in 2008 as america's drone campaign there just escalated and so you know, the kind of shift that has happened in American warfare has been a part of my reporting for so long. But this project, this specific project that grew out of watching the air war against ISIS unfold and seeing these numbers that our own government was telling the public and Congress and everyone else around the world, they just weren't stacking up. And I think at that point in time, it's you know, I think early 2016, I had just recently finished an investigation in Afghanistan that had looked at U.S. claims about education efforts there, where I did a ground sample of schools that the U.S. claimed to have funded in the country. And I was looking at these numbers about casualties from the, the Pentagon, which had said, you know, we have, I think at the time they'd admitted eight civilian deaths. And it just, they couldn't be true. And I wanted to know, can I systematically study them? And I spent two years working on that ground sample from Iraq that I think, you know, we discussed the last time I was talking to long form, but I think the sort of challenge I kept encountering, and I think every reporter in a post 9-11 environment has encountered is what do you do when you go on the ground and you report something out there and you bring it back to the military and they say, well, we reject this. We have classified information that you don't. We struck X target. We can't tell you the details of it. What do you do then? And so the basis for this most recent project for me has been 
what do I do then? How do I contest or get access to what they claim as classified and what they're using as a basis to reject those findings from the ground? So let's talk about this idea of what's classified and what's not. When something is classified, is that classified forever? Uh, do you get any kind of indication of when it might become unclassified? And uh, how does FOIA play into all of this? And can you FOIA things that are classified? You know, we've seen national security invoked as a reason for refusing to give people information about the rationale for why we fight wars, the basis on which we take military action. This has happened again and again. And it usually would take forever for most of the documents that I ultimately obtained to be declassified. And by forever, you know, some of them state 20 years from the date of this document. Some of them say even longer, but that can always be reevaluated and extended. And to use the Freedom of Information Act under ordinary means, if you submit, you know, a request to the Pentagon or to U.S. Central Command for these records, You'll be put in a queue, and most of the time, you will not get a response for seven years because they're working their way through all the requests they have. So the way that you need to go about it is you have to ask for expedited processing. And that was something I was very aware of. And back in 2016, when I filed a FOIA request, the first one, uh, you know, for a single incident, you know, I opened up the Pentagon's guidelines for its FOIA process and saw what they required for expedited processing. And they're the traditional arguments. You know, they, they expect you to show that there is public interest and that there is, you know, that this would shed light on federal government activity. So the kind of traditional things people ask for, but I saw that there was something else in there as well. They said potential for basically imminent harm. This idea that someone might be at risk of danger or their physical safety was under threat and that disclosing those records to you on an expedited basis to be able to demonstrate that that would affect that would be helpful. So I saw that and I kind of put two and two together. I, I was looking at the time for the documents in a case involving a man named Basim Razo, who was targeted and it, it, his house was targeted in an airstrike. They believed it was an ISIS headquarters and they wound up killing his wife, his daughter, his brother, and his nephew. And, you know, through my reporting, I was able to confirm that they had conducted an assessment into that incident. I knew that that document existed and I wanted to get my hands on it. And so in addition to claiming that this was, you know, these documents would show us important federal government activity that the public has a right to know, I also said that, look, if you, you know, this is a person who fears for his life. He is afraid that he will be retaliated against because he was incorrectly dubbed ISIS. And there are vigilante militias that have been going after people believed to be ISIS. He has written himself, you know, before I'd ever even met him, he put together this dossier of, you know, why he wanted this case to be addressed. And one of the things he said was that he was afraid of rogue militias, essentially targeting him and others in his family as a result of this erroneous strike. Uh, you know, erroneous is a casual term to use to describe this, but, you know, it's what lawyers might, how they might kind of craft this kind of an argument. And so I made that argument and I was granted expedited processing. And for that document, I received it in about four months instead of seven years or longer even. 
And so I knew I had a means to try to get more of these records. And that's what I went about doing for the next several years. One of the things that I found the most visceral in reading um, your reporting on this was the chat logs of the uh, operators behind these drones and, and the chain of command above them. How did you think about telling their story and uh, what kinds of insights into what was really happening there were, were you able to get? Prior to this, before getting these records and seeing those chat logs, I had fought very hard to get an embed with the Combined Air Operations Center in Qatar, which is the kind of the nerve center of this air campaign, not just in Iraq and Syria, but in Afghanistan as well. And you can go there and you can report it out and you can have all of these officially sanctioned interviews, but it is just not that kind of raw, candid nature that you would get from seeing how these are actually conducted and done. And so when I started to get these records, you know, we fought, we sued the Department of Defense and U.S. Central Command with assistance from the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. And as these batches of documents are coming in, yes, there are redactions, but you were also seeing these conversations in which people would, they would be talking about this. They would be like, this area is popping. And you would just see them go after men on the street, um, go from house to house bombing. And then, you know, it would dawn on them later that, oh, actually, there's also children. We can see them now. And so it was quite stunning to see that kind of candid conversation that isn't made public. I think that we have on occasions seen leaks, you know, whether that's from an organization like WikiLeaks you know, there have been major contributions made in the past that have shown us glimpses of this. And, you know, it's very hard, I think, to get that kind of systematic understanding of what's really happening and what's going wrong. And these chat logs are a real window into it. And unfortunately, you know, we're still fighting over some of them. You know, they've been held back from many of these cases. We're trying to get more when it comes to videos, they usually strip them of audio, and so you can't necessarily hear those conversations. But I think it's a very stunning portrait that's different than what we're told. And, you know, I think it's important to also to just say that over years, I've built so many sources who work on the other end of this kind of air war, who are pushing buttons, who are analyzing, you know, full motion video, as they call it, or are geospatial analysts who are calling out coordinates and identifying, making positive identification of targets. And they've helped me understand these records. They've helped me put this in context. And one of the things that, you know, really just has stayed with me is that, you know, one senior official involved in this, he said that this, you know, vast bureaucracy, this process to minimize civilian harm, all of this exists not just to project accountability to the rest of the world and to maintain this moral credibility and legitimacy that the United States wants, but that it's also for people on the inside. You know, his exact words were that it gives them psychological comfort to be able to say, we went through this process. We did this in a particular manner because so many people would I think, lose faith in that. And he himself even said, I think once you come back, you can never go back into the field and do this again. He said that it was just, it, it, it's emotionally damaging. And so I think it's important to look at that, but I think it's it's also important not to lose sight of, 
you know, who is on the receiving end of these bombs. And, and that's sort of what I made central to my, to my reporting, which is these people on the ground and what it means to have essentially shifted the costs of war almost entirely to foreign populations. In your story, you know, primarily in this sort of two-part series that you did about this, you've got three major players. You've got the people on the ground who are getting bombed. You've got people who are operating drones and making calls about whether to call in those strikes. And then you've got the uh, military hierarchy and its uh, demands of secrecy. So as you started to put this together as a story, how did you think about turning all these disparate, pretty hard fought strands of reporting into a, a final product? Yes. So I'm very lucky to have the editors that I had and also the the ability to publish in two very different kinds of forms, right? So part one was in the newspaper and part two was in the magazine. So in the newspaper, you know, we strategized, and this is where my editor Paul Fishletter and, and Matthew Purdy on the investigations team at the Times were really thoughtful about we are going to go hard on these records. You know, I obtained more than 1,300 of these assessments in which, you know, it was more than 5,400 pages and, you know, was looking at trends within these. And so you kind of have the ability to, in that story, in a newspaper story, to step out and say, you know, here's what we're seeing. Here's how the majority of these are happening. And actually, here's what the document says. And here's what it actually, you know, we I found on the ground. And to kind of do that very numbers heavy very data driven. You know, I built this database. I had, I even hired some of my own former students who are, you know, incredible reporters from Columbia Journalism School who were, you know, kind of also intaking these records and we studied them to identify these patterns. And so we had that newspaper story that really focused on that and also gave you the accounts of some of these survivors on the ground. And then we used the magazine story to really hone in on some of the the, the human tolls to, to get deeper with people and individuals. You now you you can find the numbers and that newspaper story, but let's let's kind of hear some of the accounts of these people. Let's grapple with these laws of war, the intricacies of this, you know, how this process actually plays out for those, some of them making the decision, but really for those on the ground. And what happens when you take a document that basically says, yeah, we saw children on the roof of this house and we chose to strike it. We decided it was proportional. And what happens when you take that document and you sit down with a woman on the ground who lost 11 members of her family and you tell her, they saw your grandchildren on the roof of the house. And here's what happened. You know, what might you say to that? Like that, it's kind of this rare intersection of that data-driven reporting and these people on the ground you don't get coupled with something I am so grateful to my editors at the magazine. So Jake Silverstein and and Luke Mitchell, my editor there, they were so great about wanting to incorporate the process behind this reporting to get very transparent about how I did it, including my methodology and very like lay terms. So everyone can understand it. Here's how I matched these documents to incidents on the ground. Here's the process I went through. Here are the Iraqis I hired and worked with. On the ground here are students at the University of Mosul's Department of Translation. Um, Because I think a lot of, we're in an era of reporting and journalism these days where people want to know more about the backstory of how you do the reporting, about the ethics and the editorial standards. There's a lot of criticism 
of the press and a lot of harsh judgments about how journalists do their work and, you know, unfair, but, you know, what can we do to kind of show them that backstory? And that was a, also an essential part of the magazine piece. So I was lucky to be able to incorporate, you know, what were a, a large number of priorities into various places where they fit best. As someone who now has um, the better part of a decade uh, experience reporting on um, how the military treats this stuff, what kind of advice would you give to someone who was embarking on maybe their first piece of journalism that required um, dealing with uh classified documents, military secrecy, uh, the fog of war, etc. You need evidence. And I think far too often it can be easy in an environment in which military brass are telling you one thing, maybe, you know, national security bureaus are telling you something. Like I would encourage you to go back in time and watch, um, there's a great documentary film called News Wars from the PBS series Frontline that chronicles different parts of the news industry. But one of the episodes, you know, looks hard at the lead up to the Iraq war. And there's so much great coverage of what journalists did in that time period, but you can see how the war for scoops and what intelligence officials were saying played such a role in the reporting in that time. I would encourage you to look back at that to really, I think, be able to push back and then also to, to know that, it's not okay to just go to the Pentagon or to go on briefings or to go on embeds and report. Like you need to be on the ground. You need to, as much as you can, you need to learn how to use open source intelligence techniques, OSINT tools to verify the information that might be out there to not just fight disinformation, but also to hold accountable. You don't need to be on the ground to do what, for example, the New York Times' visual investigations team has been doing to fight back against what happened, for example, in the claims after the Kabul strike, right? You saw the visual investigations team do this incredible rendering along with Matthew Akins to basically show, no, here's who was really impacted by that. Here's how what, you know, they claimed or believed were, you know, packages of explosives were probably just water bottles. And you don't need a fancy ground reporting history to do this work. You can be on your computer and verifying things to do it. But I think it's our industry can stands to suffer so much if we don't push back appropriately. And looking back at 2003 is a great example uh, of what we could lose. One of the things that really stuck with me from the series was how there's this sort of uh, push and pull of technological advancement and the belief that technological advancement should cause less civilian deaths, but often it becomes a uh, excuse or a rationale for ratcheting up risk so that any gains are uh, deeply uh, ungained by the um, aggressiveness uh, in response. I I'm curious about how you came to that conclusion and other things that you've observed sort of over the time that you've been covering this um, this area that are that are shifts from where where it was when you started to how it's being dealt with uh, now by the military. So one thing I would say is that, you know, we'll often hear after a civilian casualty incident that 
we're not going to have any disciplinary action for anyone involved. There was no wrongdoing found. The rules of war and the laws of war were followed closely and that can happen. But I think what was really damning for me is that when I obtained these 1300 records and not one of them, was there a single instance in which they describe any disciplinary action for anyone involved or any findings of wrongdoing? And, and more than that, they also, you know, that I think there's only one possible violation of the rules of engagement. And so when I was looking at this, like in that, in totality, suddenly it's really hard to say you really have a system of accountability. If you examine the, the records, what they claim to be their system of accountability, all of a sudden you see that there was... It, you know, it, it's almost like a system of impunity. So to come to that, I wouldn't say that lightly. And it took me years of reporting to get to a place where I felt like that was a, that was clearly shown, right? That I could characterize it that way. Um, but part of it was in the records. Part of it was talking to some of these sources. You know, I, I spoke with somebody and I, I quote him in the newspaper story who was very involved in these investigations. And he said, I, I see why these are being done. Because I'd asked him, like, look, there's all of these records. They're, they're clearly going through elaborate processes. It takes up their time to do this. You know, why would they do this if it's not leading to them learning lessons or engaging in changes based on this? And he said, it actually leads to expanded ability to take risk on the battlefield. That it, And somebody else had also said that this, like, prevents allegations of wrongdoing against people involved. Like it essentially is a means to protect people. And I found that incredibly powerful and it, it makes more sense as you look at these documents. Did you perceive anything in your reporting that you feel like, uh, I'm going to try to end this on an optimistic note and probably fail, that there were positive changes um, to any of these policies uh, that are either in effect or are being fought for? So Secretary Austin at the Department of Defense had put out a memo saying that he basically put a deadline on these long-awaited policies that have been pushed for since the uncounted, actually. So there's supposed to be, for example, a new civilian casualty policy. And he put out this memo stipulating that this has to be done within a certain time frame. So, you know, that's that's one evidence of progress. He also announced that there would be a center for excellence you know, created to study civilian casualties and make improvements. And, you know, my colleagues at the Times have written about some of these, and I think they, they see hope in that. And I think that's really important. And I would also say that, you know, Dave Phillip and Eric Schmidt and Mark Mazzetti's reporting looking at, you know, a special operations task force resulted in commitments from Pentagon officials to reinvestigate those incidents. And so you can see that, but I think this is something I've been looking at for a while, which is, you know, how do we even get to a system of accountability? What's often a driving force? I think some of the factors that are most often a driving force for accountability are not built into the system that exists. And what I mean by that is that so often accountability comes from broad public criticism of the ways in which wars are being conducted. And that criticism is often driven by the loss of service member lives, right? So you can see how during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, Americans coming home in body bags was a major reason for why there was an anti-war movement or why there was, for example, congressional accountability efforts to really, if you look back at that time period, you can see Congress taking 
so much action on, for example, corruption and the trucking scandals in Afghanistan or so many different means of accountability in these wars came from widespread public ire with how these wars were going and Americans coming home. Like, what is it worth? Now, when you take American service member deaths out of that picture or you reduce them drastically, right? More Americans died by suicide in the war against ISIS service members than in hostile death, right? When you're largely conducting a war via air and very few people on the ground, the thing that often makes Americans even just aware of the fact that we have a war going on is now gone. The kind of thing that often provokes accountability from congressional leaders and the system of checks and balances that we rely on to authorize wars, to to follow them closely and to not forget about them and just perpetuate them almost endlessly, um, that that's that's gone. And I think that I'd like to be more optimistic about this, but my reporting has taught me that a lot of the factors that most drive accountability in war don't exist as much in this new form of warfare and this shift that's taken place. Well, we failed at an optimistic ending, but I'm not shocked. Uh, thank you so much and uh, congratulations uh, on your Polk Award. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really honored to have gotten to work with the team that I did, um, a lot of the reporters that I mentioned. And then, you know, I, I just want to make a special shout out to Momin Mohanad and Zainab Al-Fakhri, two students in Mosul that I worked with who were just fantastic. And I'm so lucky to be able to share this with all of them. Thank you. That was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to Osmot Khan. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Uh, thanks to our editor on this episode, Seth Kelly. Uh, thanks to everyone at the George Polk Awards. This is the last episode in our series of George Polk Award winners. Thanks to everyone who did it. Thanks to everyone who made it possible. And of course, thanks to everyone at Vox Media who helped us make this show. We'll be back with normal, regular, old, long-form podcast episodes next week. matchup between your two favorite teams and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip off and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply.